Hello and welcome to this episode of Irreligiosophy, the one true podcast, and the only podcast to be banned from creationist hate sites. <laughs> I would comment, but I'm afraid you'll ban me. Uh, no, that's a good point, Matt. Um, I, here I am, locked in an epic struggle with the intellect of Kirk Hastings. And where are you? Where is my fucking co-host? <laughs> uh, I was hiding in the background, observing, waiting for my chance to jump in and deliver a well-timed jab. No? And uh, when did that chance arise? I'm still waiting for my you moment. fucking dick, I got banned. <laughs> and still you didn't jump in. You were happy to be banned. <laughs> you, you had to try to be banned. Dear Lord, I was banned from Kirk's Question Irreligiosophy site. Um, I would like to point out, Matt, that Kirk allowed me to insult his uh, Lord and Savior with reckless abandon. Uh, but... The merest hint that Superman is gay, banned. Oh, that's what got to him. Hit a little too close to home, I think. You can do whatever you want with the Bible, but fuck with his fan fiction, banned. (laughs) All right, uh, we got plenty of people who are also banned. Let's see here. Carl was banned. From now on, they shall be referred to as the Legion of the Band. (laughs) (laughs) Or I will just do that. (laughs) Carl, I've about had it with your dumb, uniformed, smart guy comments. Don't put a uniform on your comments, Carl. (laughs) Uh, Noah got banned. I think Noah asked um, if Kirk hated Vishnu like we hate uh, his god. And deleted. Um, Let's see. Prescott got banned. Evolution doesn't explain something beyond its explanatory boundaries. Uh, Therefore, Jesus. Uh, Leela got banned because she mentioned the word vagina. Vagina. Penny got banned after saying she wanted to be like me when she grew up. That apparently is hateful and insulting. That is. Mike got banned for questioning Cowboy Bob's use of the word misotheist, which I'm sure he just fucking made up, and uh, asking why Bob was such a misofarist. <laughs> <laughs> That's some kind of Japanese soup, I think. Uh, Stuart got banned for criticizing Kirk's artwork. He said that Leighton and I looked like strung-out meth addicts. <laughs> banned! That's, that's why they're so accurate. Banned! <laughs> it's photorealistic. Uh, Mark got banned for telling Kirk it wasn't very Christ-like of Kirk to call Mark a narcissistic, egoist ass. <laughs> <laughs> Andy got banned for suggesting we buy one copy of his book and pass it around and donate the money we would have spent... The Doctors Without Borders. You can't fuck with his finances either. I like that suggestion. Medicines sans frontières. And uh, Derek got banned for asking to be banned. <laughs> you got your <laughs> wish. Banned. Wish granted. Hyunwoo <laughs> uh, Kim, he's our token um, Asian atheist on irreligiosity. So that we have diversity. We, we thank God for Hyunwoo Kim because we wouldn't meet our diversity requirements without him. Right. He got banned for saying uh, Kirk isn't willing to accept evidence that contradicts his own flavor of Christianity. So, I believe I believe the entirety of uh, irreligiosity members have, have gotten banned from the site, with a single exception of Matt fucking Wakefield. Because <laughs> I haven't commented. God, you dick! How could you leave me alone in the epic struggle of my life with Kirk Hastings' intellect? You were, <laughs> uh, you were doing so well. I knew uh, there was no reason for me to say. Everyone was doing well, though. <laughs> we all had a good time, and now we're, now you're all banned. Now, it, um, it looks like this internet wasteland where you have a bunch of tumbleweeds blow by, and Kirk Hastings <laughs> is fucking arguing with himself. It's hilarious. You like click on the thing, it says, Shut up, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Stop being such a dick. I love it. He's down in like a corner of his basement in a dark room somewhere with his computer. It's kind of a... <laughs> Angry typing away. Right. Uh, I wanted to read uh, my band uh, statement from Kirk. Uh, at least portions of it. He said, um, you uh, win, in quotes, you win debates because you're a slick talker, like a used car salesman that knows how to manipulate people in situations to get the dishonest result you want. But none of this childish game-playing makes you right or even honest. 
You like to put yourself up on a moral pedestal and act like you're so much more moral and decent than anyone else. Even God. <laughs> you slick talker. I'll take that one. I'm definitely more moral than God. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Uh, and so, respectable. And then you turn around and play some of the most dirty, low-down, dishonest tricks on people that you can think of. Your latest dirty trick, writing a fake pornographic review of my Superman story on the internet, and then telling your brain-dead atheist followers to follow your rotten example and do the same, is finally getting you banned from this page. So that was it. Uh, you know, like I said, I could insult God. I think we were arguing about how uh, abiogenesis occurred in, uh, and I told him, Kirk, abiogenesis occurred in, in, in your Bible, you know, where God took lifeless clay and, and made it into Adam. And I asked him to explain how that happened, because he's, he's asking for a, a scientific explanation for abiogenesis. He uh, said that the God took some of his own life force and gave it to Adam. He begat Adam just like everyone else. And so he said, I love that. Like, he just makes that up. He just pulls that out of his ass. <laughs> So I said, oh, really? So did uh, Adam emerge from the holy rectum or the sacred urethra? <laughs> Not banned, Matt. Not banned for that. Not banned for holy rectum. But I did get banned for writing a review, um, which I think was so disturbingly accurate, he could not leave it. He's now deleted both the story and my review from the Internet. Fortunately, I saved a copy. Oh, let's publish it. Which I will now publish over the podcasty airwaves. Very well. Uh, this story is a disturbing look at Superman's visit to the gentlemen's bathhouses of ancient Rome. Timid and unsure of his budding homoerotic feelings, Superman acquires a time machine and some lubrication, apparently corboreum X-rated super frictionless lube, according to the story. Readies his throbbing loins and departs for a weekend of homo debauchery and sweet, sweet man love. The invulnerability of Clark Kent's super sphincter is put to the test by gladiator after gladiator in the seedy underbelly of the Empire's capital city until Superman is given to cry, I am Spartacus! after one particularly brutal prostate-blistering climax. The damage from Clark's Kryptonian emissions brings Imperial Rome to its knees, reducing large portions of the city to rubble and starting a massive fire for which Nero is later blamed. In an effort to throw off the blame, Nero impales thousands of Christians and sets fire to thousands more. Feeling a twinge of guilt that he may be at least partially responsible for the property damage, Superman gathers his prolapsed colon and returns home to a life of internet porn, corboreum X viscosity-free hand lotion, and invulnerable yet strangely stiff Kryptonian sock. <laughs> I give this story a five Kegel rating, but I have to admit that I'm a longtime personal friend of the author. I also give it five somethings. <laughs> That's what got me and banned, Matt. That's what got me banned from his site. That's pretty graphic, although I gotta say, I'm quite turned on now. <laughs> I thought it captured the homoerotic flavor of Kirk Hastings' own story quite well. Oh my god. You know, he's probably just gonna come after us for copyright infringement or something now. <laughs> uh, again, not not angered so much that we insult his lord and savior who who died and bled and suffered for him in the garden of Gethsemane on the, on the cross. But my god, you even hint that Superman might have a homoerotic feeling. Banned. <laughs> Banned from the site. All right, uh, shall we move on to part 11, the case for Christ? Let's move on to a case of Christ. A Let's bad a case of Christ. <laughs> I've got a bad case of Christ. <laughs> Oh, you're a doctor. Get me some ointment for that, Charles. <laughs> All right. The Case of Christ is part 11. Uh, where are we in the book, by the way? We are on page 94. We're still not halfway done. Jesus H. <laughs> Christ. This, this is the worst thing you've ever done to me, and I will never forget it. <laughs> well, we're now going to inflict it on our listeners as well. Oh, Lord. Um, so, uh, it starts out by uh, establishing... The trustworthiness, Matt, of the uh, gospel authors, who, again, Kirk Hastings believe is actually Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the, the, I quote from page 94. The biographers of Jesus have proven themselves to be first-rate historians time and time again. And additionally, they were taught the value of strict honesty by Jesus. Oh, well, there you go. Jesus? Jesus taught them not to lie. Therefore, they must be strictly honest. Kirk seems... Uh, 
amazingly unaware about the massive amounts of apocrypha in the second century. Right? Christians never lie. They'd never make up a story about Jesus, little child Jesus, killing some kid who bumped into him or, or a teacher who wrapped him on the knuckles. The Gospel of Peter with its cross emerging from the fucking tomb, totally real and, and very honest. All of the go Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Peter, uh, Gospel of Tom, all this stuff, completely real. Jesus actually did turn his brother, twin brother Thomas into a slave and send him to India. This is all perfectly true, because as we know, Christians have been taught the value of strict honesty by Jesus. They'd never make shit up. No. God, not to mention the fact that... Say. <laughs> <laughs> no, they wouldn't. Well, why don't you just... You know, the, the Muslims were taught the value of strict honesty by Mohammed. They would never lie. They would never make stuff up. Well, fuck you, Kirk Hastings. Was that your Arab Arab accent? You have a problem with my Arab accent. <laughs> it sounds like a bad Indian accent. You'll fucking behead you. <laughs> Not to mention Second Thessalonians 2, verse 11. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Right there in the fucking New Testament. God's a big what? fat liar. Oh. God's pants are on fire. <laughs> Specifically, God sends them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Oh, my God. All right. Um, he moves on. Uh, does evidence for Jesus' life exist outside the New Testament? Why, of course it does, Matt. And he gives us a list of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight authors. Nine, if you count the bullet point Asia Minor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was skimming through this so poorly that I thought he was listing Asia Minor as an author. <laughs> and yeah. I totally accepted it. I'm like, what a moron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he inadvertently hit a carriage return and got another bullet yeah. point. Oh, my God. Um, all right. The, the first author he lists is Cornelius Tacitus. And remember, Matt, I, I told you to recall that little piece of stone they found, Tiberium Pontius Pilate, Prefect of Judea specifically for when he talked about Tacitus. That's right. I recall that. Uh, so Cornelius Tacitus, he lists circa 55 to 120 AD, um, famous Roman historian. Now, again, the, the writing, although Tacitus did live in the first century, uh, the writing is in the second century, probably around 117, I think, 116, 117. Um, he's talking about the Great Fire of Rome, uh, let's see. Consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had, had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. That sounds like a fun place. <laughs> so, this is fair. This is pretty much universally accepted as genuine. It seems to fit with the flow of the narrative. It does sound like Tacitus. Unfortunately, this d doesn't really count as an independent uh, attestation of Jesus, because if Tacitus was getting his information from say, Roman reports, Tacitus was very careful with his sources, uh, you would have expected that he would have got the title of Pontius Pilate correct. He wasn't a procurator, he was a prefect. He's obviously getting this from a different source, probably from, I believe, a, um, prior to his uh, post as historian, he was a governor of a small province in Rome and probably had to deal with the same types of, of um, uh, Christians as uh, another author that he brings up, uh, Pliny the Younger, had to deal with in Bithynia. Uh, so he probably got his information from Christians themselves. It's, like I said, not uh, an independent source. So um, not only is it late, it's nearly 100 years after Jesus was crucified, but it's uh, likely not even an independent source. It probably derives from interviews of Christians that he got. Uh, Lucian of Samosata the second uh, person, latter half of the second century A.D. So this is probably 150 years after Christ was crucified. Uh, not possible that that's an independent source. Suetonius, he lists his first century A.D., but again, Suetonius wrote his 12 lives of Caesar, Caesars in the second century, probably around 119. Uh, the passage is this. 
Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. This is generally considered to refer to the expulsion around 49 to 50, possibly referred to in Acts 18, verse 2. But even, again, this can't be Christ, because that's a good 20 years after he was <laughs> crucified. So if it's an a independent source, he's got the details wrong. But again, nearly 100 years after Jesus. The next one, he says, is Pliny the Younger, as we mentioned before, the uh, governor of Bithynia. He lists him as 1st century A.D. Again, the letter is in the 110s, probably 112 to 114, uh, that he wrote about the Christians to, to Trajan. All right, the next one is Thallus. This one um, is interesting because you typically only hear this from Christian apologists, not typically from actual historians. It's so the first time Thallus is ever mentioned but the first time he's ever mentioned is by Theophilus, who's writing around 180 A.D. So that leaves us in uh, with a, over a century where it could possibly be dated. So what does Thallus have to say about Jesus? Say if he did, say he did write in the first century. What does he say about Jesus? The answer is, we have no fucking idea. The only thing we can do is guess or speculate based on um, an obscure passage that was passed down third hand. What we have from Thallus is uh, a 9th century monk named George Sincilius uh, composed a, a history of the world, basically. And he quoted verbatim from numerous um, previous historians. One of whom was a 3rd century Christian historian, Julius Africanus. So, we have a 9th century monk quoting a 3rd century Christian historian who quotes Thallus, but not directly. Here's what we have from Julius <laughs> Africanus in the 3rd century. After the most dreadful darkness fell over the whole world, the rocks were torn apart by an earthquake in much of Judea, and the rest of the land was torn down. Thallus calls this darkness an eclipse of the sun in the third book of his histories, without reason, it seems to me. For how are we to believe that an eclipse happened when the moon was diametrically opposite the sun? So, we get that Thallus mentions an eclipse uh, in the 1st century. Julius Africanus says this is impossible because Christ was crucified on the day of the Passover, which begins on a full moon. You can't have an eclipse of the sun <laughs> when the sun the is shining and reflecting off the moon. Uh, so that's all we get. We, we have no idea what Thallus actually said or whether he even mentioned Jesus at all. This could be Julius Africanus is tying together a mere mention of eclipse in the early first century. Uh, and saying, well, this couldn't have been the eclipse of Jesus, because this is why. Or, he was wrong about the time, because, you know, as we know, Jesus was uh, crucified on the night of a full moon. So, we can pretty much throw out <laughs> Thallus as a... We have no... He never mentions Jesus that we have. He just mentions an eclipse, which may or may not reference the darkness uh, that was supposedly written about in the Gospels. So, Thallus is out. At best, we have a third-hand quote that has no mention of Jesus whatsoever. Uh, the next mention is, the next author is a witness of Jesus, is Phlegon, who he says 1st century A.D. Now, this we get from Africanus, again, who's still talking about the eclipse, right? Right. Uh, he says, in fact, let it be so. Let the idea that this happened seize and carry away the multitude, and let the cosmic prodigy be counted as an eclipse of the sun according to its appearance. Phlegon reports that in the time of Tiberius Caesar, during the full moon, a full eclipse of the sun happened from the sixth hour until the ninth. Clearly this is our eclipse! What is common about an earthquake and eclipse, rocks torn apart, a rising of the dead, and such a huge, huge cosmic movement? At the very least, over a long period, no conjunction this great is remembered. But it was a God-sent darkness, because the Lord happened to suffer, and the Bible in Daniel reports that 70 spans of seven years would come together upon this time. Now there was a solar eclipse... Uh, I believe in uh, the year 29, I think, uh, in the time of Tiberius Caesar. Um, so what uh, Africanus is saying is that uh, this eclipse probably was <laughs> now our, uh, our darkness uh, from Jesus, um, but it was just a miracle. Again, Phlegon uh, doesn't... So you can have it with the full moon. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's a miracle, it's magic. Phlegon doesn't, again, he doesn't say anything about Jesus. He just says that there was an eclipse in the time of Tiberius. So, during the full moon, apparently. And we know, actually, we know that um, 
Phlegon has absolutely nothing to say about Jesus because Eusebius quotes him verbatim, right? Julius Africanus doesn't say, he just says that Phlegon reports an eclipse. Eusebius quotes Phlegon verbatim. So, uh, here we go. Um, this is actually what Phlegon has to say. Hit me. In fact, Phlegon too, a distinguished reckoner of the Olympiads, wrote more on these events in his 13th book, saying this, Now, in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, 32 AD, a great eclipse of the sun occurred at the sixth hour, noon, that excelled every other before it, turning the day into such darkness of night that the stars could be seen in heaven, and the earth moved in Bithynia, toppling, toppling many buildings in the city of Nicaea. So, that's the entirety of the quote. That's what Phlegon actually said. Where's the Jesus? There's no mention of Jesus. So, what he does is he just records an earthquake in Bithynia, which, by the way, is on the coast of the Black Sea. That's more than 500 miles away from Jerusalem. And and, and some sort of noontime eclipse, uh, whose uh, location's not clear. But that's confirmation of... Clearly. Clearly. Except, I believe, like I said, I believe he got the date wrong. Um, I believe it was 29 AD, not 32, um, as we currently calculate uh, the uh, eclipse that happened during the time. All right. Um, Bad numbers. <laughs> he also says, Mara Bar Serapion, 1st century AD. All right. Uh, I had to look. Uh, I had to dig deep for this one, Matt. Okay. So deep. Yes. Into the bowels of Wikipedia. I, I almost, hope you had a glove on. Almost did not emerge. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god alright Mara Bar Serapion is writing his son uh, whose town apparently was just destroyed and taken over by uh, Romans uh, and he says this what else can we say when the wise are forcibly dragged off by tyrants their wisdom is captured by insults and their minds are oppressed and without defense what advantage did the Athenians gain from murdering Socrates famine and plague came upon them as a punishment for their crime what advantage did the men of Samos gain from burning Pythagoras? In a moment their land was covered with sand. What advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? It was just after that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. The Athenians died of hunger, the Samians were overwhelmed by the sea, and the Jews, desolate and driven from their kingdom, live in complete dispersion. But Socrates is not dead because of Plato, neither is Pythagoras because of the statue of Juno, nor is the wise king because of the new law he laid down. So that's what we have uh, from Mara Bar Serapion. Now, note that... Aha! Uh -huh. Done! That's it? <laughs> <laughs> that's the piece I was looking for. QED. I'm Christian now. The wise king, obviously Jesus, right? Note that we, yes, the wise king probably is Jesus. Note that, however, Kirk Hastings places Mara Bar Serapion in the first century. Au contraire. You note that that it does mention, so it has to happen after the year 70, because that's when um, Jerusalem was uh, destroyed in the first time. But notice he mentions that the Jews, desolate and driven from their own kingdom, live in complete dispersion. That places it after the second rebellion, the Bar Kokhba rebellion. The Jews weren't kicked out of Jerusalem uh, after the 66 to 70 revolt. They were kicked out of Jerusalem after the second revolt in the 130s. That places this after the revolt of the 130s. So this is second century, probably mid to late second century, but it could be anywhere from uh, the 130s to probably third or fourth century. So that, uh, again, doesn't help. It's, it's an ancient author, but he's not in the first century. And then, of course, he mentions Josephus ben Mattathias, first century AD. Apparently, Kirk Hastings believes that the Testimonium Flavianum uh, is 100% uh, accurate to Josephus. Apparently, Josephus was a Christian, uh, declared that Jesus was the Messiah under uh, the rule of Vespasian. <laughs> he said that Jesus was the king of the world while being paid by the actual king of the world, Vespasian. Wonderful. Say what? <laughs> he was paid? He was paid by Vespasian. He was oh. under Vespasian's tutelage. You remember the story of Josephus, right? Josephus was uh, part of that first re rebellion in 66 to 70. He led, uh, he was general of the groups uh, of the group of Jews actually in Galilee. He was uh, utterly routed in his first battle 
and uh, he drew lots with his soldiers to kill themselves, because they didn't want to be taken by Vespasian. And uh, he got the last straw. He was supposed to kill himself, decided against it, and uh, said that Vespasian is the Messiah that was declared by the Jews, and that he would be the next emperor. That actually turned out to be true. Uh, so he took uh, he took um, Josephus under his wing, set him up with a little plaza, and uh, paid him uh, as a patron of the arts to to write histories. So, nice. um, so what Kirk Hastings is claiming is that under this uh, patronage of Emperor Vespasian, Josephus said that Jesus was the King of the World, <laughs> the Messiah. He was the Messiah. Um, so clearly. This uh, passage of Josephus was being fucked with, being interpolated. Um, and the whole passage, it looks like, moves around from where it was first noted by Eusebius uh, to where we have it today. So the entire passage uh, jumps around in the manuscript. In my opinion, it's absolutely an interpolation, the entire thing. If you remove it, the narrative flows without any problem. The majority of historians disagree with me. They believe that if you strip out all of the confessional sayings of Josephus, and you're left with a neutral passage uh, that uh, was probably in there. I disagree, because Origen didn't mention any of that, neutral or otherwise. And he was writing at the end of the 2nd century, beginning of the 3rd century. So, uh, anyway, uh, clearly, Josephus's passage, as it exists as we read it now, was not there. All right, so uh, he utterly fails, I think, in, in stating anything. The earliest mention we have specifically of Jesus, is probably the letter of uh, Pliny the Younger to Trajan in the one-teens. That's nearly a century afterwards. It's almost impossible, I think, for that stuff not to be uh, affected by the Gospels that were circulating around. Well, that's as good a dating technique as carbon dating, Chuck. It's right. close enough. Uh, right, absolutely. <laughs> so the next section, Matt. Moving from Lee Strobel... We, we go to C.S. Lewis, uh, right. where, where we're now going to get the trifecta from C.S. Lewis. Was he liar, lunatic, or lord? So, Lewis's trilemma. The trilemma. Was, was Jesus just a good moral teacher and nothing more? Kirk says that we can't claim that Jesus was a good moral teacher and nothing more because Jesus also claimed to be God. And if that's not true, what kind of behavior is that for a good moral teacher? Right. Go around claiming to be God. That would make him some sort of hypocrite. <laughs> and um, his claims for God are all John, John ten thirty, John thirty two thirty three, uh, John five eighteen, John fourteen nine. They're all found in John, of course, which is the latest of the Gospels, and of course suffers from that uh, theological movement where you you move from Jesus the Messiah and the Son of God to Jesus being co-eternal and co-equal with God. So the question is, did Jesus ever claim to be God himself during his original ministry? If you strip all that theological uh, stuff away that's now been added on to him in the 50 years, 60 years between Jesus' death, um, if he existed in the first place, and John, if you strip all that stuff away, did Jesus actually historically claim to be God? We have no fucking idea. We don't have a clue. If we did, why isn't it present in Mark, his first source? I don't know. Why isn't President Paul in the epistles? Stop picking on me. <laughs> he quotes the famous writer, scholar, and Cambridge professor C.S. Lewis. You see one, one, uh, one qualification that's missing from that. <laughs> he's a famous writer, scholar, and Cambridge professor. Though he's totally unbiased, you know, totally unbiased, Matt. Wait a second. <laughs> he doesn't say he's a Christian. <laughs> Let me read you what Kirk Hastings quotes the famous writer-scholar and Cambridge professor C.S. Lewis as summing up the situation quite nicely. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Him is capitalized. I'm ready to, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. So, Matt, apparently we can say Jesus used his face... Uh, and saliva to douche out Mary Magdalene. But we cannot say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Stop saying it. We can say, Jesus fucked small children in the ass, much like the Catholic priest will later. But we must not Jesus. say, he was a good moral teacher, 
And I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Did Jesus kidnap and murder and rape a young eight-year-old boy? You can it's, say that. It's, you can make a website. I'm just asking questions, Matt. Oh, you're jacking off. <laughs> <laughs> a man... J-A-Q for you. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. There's your choices. I, you know, people looked, these Christians looked to C.S. Lewis as this fucking amazing thinker and philosopher, and this is the shit we get from him. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Oh, what the fuck? You don't know what he fucking intended to do. We don't have any of his own fucking words. This is just like one of those default position arguments. I'm going to give you these options. Yes, right. I'll tell you the first two are not right. Therefore, we are left with only divinity. It is a false trilemma, this liar, lunatic, or lord. You left out the the uh, fourth L, which is legend. And that doesn't mean that Jesus himself is a legend, but every fucking thing we have about him is a legend. It's a myth. We We have no idea if it goes back to the historical Jesus. Everything was written 50 years at least after. All right, the second prong of our trilemma. Was Jesus a liar? Oh, I have a question. Yes. Okay, I might say, Chuck. <laughs> what if Jesus wasn't really crazy? What if he was aware of the fact that his claims were not true, and he just said them anyway? I love it. As if we have a fucking court stenographer sitting there and dictating, you know, typing the words of Jesus as he dictates them down at that moment. All right, yes, of course. Um, if Jesus knew that his claims to be God were not true and said them anyway, then he was not only an out-and-out -out liar. <laughs> oh, remember, this is the same man who taught others to be scrupulously honest about everything. But he was also the biggest hypocrite of all time! <laughs> I take exception to that. He was also the biggest fool of all time because his claims caused him to be tortured and crucified. One of the worst ways of all to die. Did he just call Jesus a fool? Yes. Thou fool. Thou fool. <laughs> Tortured and crucified. One of the worst ways of all to die. The worst ways of all to die. Uh, he quotes Josh McDowell as saying, If Jesus was a liar, a con man, and therefore an evil, foolish man, then how can we explain the fact that he left us with the most profound moral instruction and powerful moral example that anyone has ever left? <laughs> that doesn't follow. What the fuck? I'm a liar and a con man sometimes. <laughs> That doesn't you, mean I'm evil and foolish. You could ask the exact same question from a Mormon point of view from Joseph Smith. If Joseph Smith was a liar and a con man, why did he leave us this profound moral instruction? <laughs> well, it's easy from a Christian point of view to ask that question. From everywhere else, he doesn't seem so moral. And certainly not original. I mean, what about Confucius, who left us the same moral example? Do not unto others what you would not have them do unto you. What about Socrates, who left an amazingly moral example? He submitted to death by hemlock uh, when he absolutely could have uh, run away from it. But no, he says, the city has the right to execute me, and I would be a hypocrite if I did not submit to the rule of the city. What about Buddha and his moral example? Well, fuck all you assholes. Just because you're Christian doesn't mean you have the most <laughs> profound moral example of all time! The very notion is incredulous. <laughs> <laughs> Was Jesus crazy? <laughs> was he a poached egg, Matt? He was an out-and-out -out poached egg. Jesus didn't just claim to be God. He backed it up with amazing facts of healing, with astounding demonstrations of power over nature, as reported by Christians, with transcendent and unprecedented teaching, with divine insights into people, and ultimately his own resurrection from the dead. Unfucking believable Every single one of those, including his own resurrection from the dead, has been said of Joseph Smith. There is a group of fundamentalists who believe that Joseph Smith resurrected himself from the dead, or was resurrected from the dead, in 1889. Really? And appeared bodily to John Taylor to tell him not to give up polygamy. So, Joseph Smith... Uh, and then where'd he go? <laughs> I don't know. Ascended up to heaven. Amazing feats of healing. 
uh, as reported, um, when they were moving across the Mississippi River and everyone was in the swamp and, and uh, was struck with probably dysentery, uh, he went around and, and laid hands on um, dozens of people and healed them all instantly. So astounding demonstrations of power over nature, uh, transcendent and unprecedented teaching, according to the Mormons, divine insights into people, according to Brigham Young, and ultimately is resurrection of the dead. So um, QED, Mormonism is true. Don't tell these things to Kirk. That just strengthens his Jesus mythos. Uh, <laughs> he should be Mormon. <laughs> he should be. Kirk may convert after listening to this podcast. I bet he would be if he was born in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think, Matt? Did Jesus' resurrection really happen? I think it must have. It had to. Otherwise, this whole book would be useless. <laughs> and that's impossible. Right. Isn't someone coming back to life three days after dying impossible? That well, is what scientists would call impossible at a chance of 10 to the 50. <laughs> the odds of that happening are far less than zero. I love that. I'm arguing with Kirk Hastings about his astute grasp of statistics, and he comes <laughs> back with the odds of evolution happening are far less than zero. <laughs> and now we have Kirk Hastings. Kirk, the range of probability is from zero to one. We have two statistics from Kirk Hastings, less than zero, and far greater than one. How could you do that? How could both examples you give be outside of the range of statistics? Less than zero. That's a good movie from the 80s, starring Robert Downey Jr. Far, far less than zero. Oh, that was the sequel. Well, Kirk Hastings says under normal conditions, yes, of course, it's impossible. He admitted it! <laughs> but the Bible documents do not pretend to claim that such a thing has happened frequently. Uh, if one accepts the testimony of reason and that of the Bible... <laughs> fucking, <laughs> fucking A! Wait a second. He put a qualifier in there. That there has to be an intelligent creator God to account for the universe's existence in the first place, then it is not much of a stretch to then believe that he could raise the dead back to life when he chose to do so. So, uh, Matt, if, if you simply accept the testimony of the Bible, then you can accept the testimony of the Bible. There you <laughs> go. So All you easy. have to do is accept the testimony of the Bible. Why didn't I see it before? He quotes William Lane Craig as saying that uh, the origin of Christianity hinges on the belief of the early disciples that God had raised Jesus from the dead. I would just like to point out that uh, maybe, maybe it hinges on the belief. But the belief that Jesus raised from the dead doesn't equate to Jesus actually raising from the dead. Are you sure those two things aren't equal? Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty sure. That's what I. That's how I used to get girls in college. I'd tell them, if you just fall for my crappy come-on lines, I would have sex more often. <laughs> Therefore. Spoiler alert. I did not have sex more often. Now. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk gives us reasons why Jesus resurrected. Um, now, he says, for instance... According to the four Gospels, after the Roman soldiers guarding Jesus at his crucifixion determined that he was definitely dead, parentheses, something they were very good at since they had done such duty many times. So apparently all these Roman soldiers are first century physicians. Well, their sergeant would send them out and they're like, make sure he's definitely dead when you kill him. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, sir. Uh, Jesus was placed in a cave-like tomb carved out of a nearby hillside with a large stone rolled across the entrance to seal it. The stone was large enough so that it would take at least several people to move it. A Roman guard was also placed on Jesus' tomb and the stone sealed with a Roman seal in order to make sure that the body would not be disturbed. Jesus' predictions that he would rise from the dead three days after his death were well known by the Romans. Holy fucking shit! They were known by the Romans, but his apostles had no fucking clue about it. They're sitting at home going, Oh, woe is me, Jesus was crucified, he's dead, the movement's over. But the Romans knew. Oh, no, 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 he prophesied that he'd come back from the dead. Ah! Ah, make the stone so only three men or more can move it. With all these stringent precautions in effect, how could Jesus' body possibly have been removed or stolen by someone after his death? That conclusion simply does not make rational sense. Now, Matt, time and time again, it is clear that Kirk Hastings has not read his own fucking Bible. Let's let's go over some of those claims from Matthew 27. All right? Let me let me read Matthew 27 starting at verse 57 for you. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, 
who would himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Oh, whoa, whoa, I thought it took several people! What the fuck? Where's the seal? I missed the part where he turned into the fucking Incredible Hulk and rolled that big fucking stone and went away. He was a large man. (laughs) (laughs) It was the size of three men, like the Grinch. It was Superman when he traveled back in time. (laughs) Oh, I get it. He had on, he was speaking ancient Latin. He had on a robe, you know, over his Superman clothes. Uh, May I have Jesus' body, sir? Oh, sure. (laughs) Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Now, assuming every fucking thing that happened was correct, do you notice a problem here? Um, I didn't know you were going to quiz me. What? (laughs) (laughs) The problem is, A, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb, watching Joseph of Arathema roll the fucking thing across. The Jews don't ask for the guard to be placed until the next day. That leaves the whole fucking night for anyone to steal Jesus' body. Even as we read it in Matthew, the only gospel that posts a guard at the tomb, the guard is not placed until the next fucking morning. Hmm. Kirk Hastings, please, read your own fucking book. Even even here, even Matthew, who's obviously putting in there, because he's heard some Jewish polemic about how possibly the apostles have moved the body, he puts it in there, even that's inadequate, because it's not till the next day. Now, uh, Kirk goes on to say that if the tomb were not empty... One could simply parade Jesus' body about to prove the Christians wrong. (laughs) If Jesus' body had still been in the grave, or had been taken by someone, then it would have been a simple matter for Jesus' enemies or the Romans to just produce the body and parade it through the streets of Jerusalem in order to end the new religion of Christianity before it had a chance to begin. All right. Problem with that? only. (laughs) Problem with that is, again, according to Acts, the Christians didn't uh, preach Christianity until the Pentecost, which happened seven weeks, 49 days after Jesus' crucifixion. What the fuck kind of tattered skeleton is anyone going to be parading around Jerusalem at that time? Oh, Jesus didn't resurrect here. Here's a pile of fucking bones with some hair sticking off of it. (laughs) Clearly this is Jesus. Clearly. Well, I guess that proves it. We're going (laughs) home. God almighty. Read your fucking book. All right, during the next... 40 days, Kirk says. During the next 40 days, hundreds of people testified that Jesus had appeared alive to them long after his crucifixion and entombment had taken place. Uh, that, that hundreds of people is only one, and that's Paul from 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the Twelve. After that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. And last of all, he was seen of me also, as of one born out of due time. I saw Bigfoot once. (laughs) No, well, the claim is... (laughs) Hundreds of people, five... Bigfoot appeared to five hundred people. We don't have the documents, we don't have a sworn affidavit of each of these five hundred people. We have Paul's word. But of course, Matt... Paul was taught to be scrupulously honest by Jesus himself. I wonder if he would accept that testimony uh, from any other religion, right? So if uh, hundreds of people, as reported by Brigham Young, saw Joseph Smith alive again, would he accept that? Or would he go with the more probable solution, which is that one person is lying? No, he would have no choice but to accept that. Right, well then he should be Mormon, because Joseph Smith appeared, as reported. I'm telling you, hundreds of people. And I was taught to be scrupulously honest by my Mormon upbringing. That's right. All of the apostles suffered. Would they have gone to their death for a lie? Or something they weren't completely sure of? Never. Never. Again, we have an example. he says, not likely. 
<laughs> Not likely. We have an example for Mormonism. Hiram Smith, shot in the face. Would he have gone to his death for a lie? Would Joseph Smith have allowed himself to be killed for a lie? Not shot likely. The face? Hiram Smith was shot in the face, yeah. That's one of the worst ways of all to die. <laughs> <laughs> shot in the face. I would also like to say that um, none of the witnesses of the Book of Mormon who, who claim to have witnessed spiritual visions of the plates ever recanted on that. They uh, went to their death, even though some of them, uh, I believe uh, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, uh, later left the church, they never recanted on their original testimony. So clearly, the Mormon church is true. It is. I'm so fortunate to live here. I've got to go. <laughs> <laughs> I must get thee to the local, what's it called? Fucking ward? Nunnery. Nunnery? <laughs> Fishmonger? I All right, know. Matt. Shall we dive into part 12? What about non-biblical religions? What about them? What about them indeed? I like his quote. He's got a good quote here. Michel de Montaigne. Man is certainly crazy. He could not make a mite. And he makes gods by the dozen. Yes, but Kirk, Kirk's God, that's true. Your God is silly to me. Uh, my favorite... <laughs> quote of that first page of the chapter on 105. Since the evidence indicates that there is only one God... <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Since the evidence indicates that there is only one God, it naturally follows that there is only one way that we can get to him, by whatever method he himself proscribes. <laughs> um, take two, Jesus. Call me in the morning. <laughs> proscribes. The word proscribe means forbidden, Kirk. What you're looking for is prescribes. Oh, my God. You might want to not rely solely on your computer spell check. Prescribes. Uh, okay, so how do we do it, Matt? We, we, how, do we, how can we see which ones hold water? As, as if Kirk Hastings hasn't already decided. Uh, he says, by examining them and seeing what the evidence tells us. Oh, my God, I'm on board. I'm on board. This shall be a rational process, I am sure. <laughs> <laughs> the next... 20 pages or so are full of rational criticism and uh, uh, evidence weighing. I gotta admit, I kind of skimmed this part too. I was like, <laughs> yep, yeah, that one's, that one's not true. Yeah, that one's not true too. Yeah, not oh. true. Well, not let's, let's true. cover them. Let's cover them briefly because I'm, I'm losing steam, Matt. Yes. I'm losing steam. Uh, the first religion he goes off is Islam. Uh, he talks about how Allah is one God. But the Bible speaks of a, a triune God, Matt. So, therefore, his Islam is wrong. So much for rationally weighing the evidence. That was easy. Next religion. <laughs> he says, Muhammad, quote, was involved in many questionable activities that included looting, killing, going back on treaties that he had made, and otherwise torturing and persecuting his enemies. Oh, my God. Does that include damaging other people's property, like overturning tables in the temple or whipping the money changers? <laughs> no, it, it only has to do with Muhammad. Uh oh He has this unbelievable sentence. I, uh, Muhammad died on June 8th, 632 A.D., at the age of 61 in Medina, where his tomb stands to this day. There is no evidence whatsoever that suggests he is still not there. You mean in the tomb? Yes. Is that what you're saying? There's no yes. Way Apparently, there. because Muhammad never resurrected, Islam isn't true. What the fuck? He didn't even claim to be resurrected. That's any part of Islam. He was but a prophet of God. Once again, and Kirk, I don't, I don't even know why this sentence is in there. But once again, he's not judging it objectively, standing outside of his own religion. He's he's comparing it to his own religion and judging it by the standard of Christianity. Well, clearly, you know, well, I, I suppose since um, Moses was buried, and there's no evidence to say that Moses is not still there, then uh, clearly the Old Testament's false. Oh. Do you have any commentary on that, Matt Wakefield? <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> on Christ. Islam? Not really. I didn't believe in it before, and Kirk still hasn't convinced me. <laughs> now, he goes on to talk about the Quran, yeah. and uh, he has this obviously unbiased appraisal of it. From German scholar Salomon Reinach, from the literary point of view, the Quran has little merit. Declamation, repetition, prerility, I don't even know how to fucking pronounce that. A lack of logic and coherence. Prerility? Prerility. You know, belonging to childhood, juvenile, immature, 
pure puerile. A lack of logic and coherence strike the unprepared reader at every turn. It is humiliating to the human intellect to think that this me mediocre literature has been the subject of innumerable commentaries and that millions of men are still wasting time in absorbing it. Oh, I know exactly how he feels. I know exactly how he feels. 100%. Except I would replace, from the literary point of view, the Koran, I would replace that with what is truth? <laughs> I thought you were referring to the Bible, but okay, I got you. Uh, uh, I love this. This shows how absolutely inept Kirk Hastings is at stepping outside of his own religion because he puts this stuff down unironically without any mention as to how it's different from Christianity. He says, quote, Little or none of the Koran was written down by Muhammad himself, uh, much like the New Testament where Jesus wrote every fucking word. <laughs> Some of Muhammad's revelations existed only in the memories of the men who heard them, and some of these men died in battle before they were able to write down what they heard. Others that survived found that their memories of what Muhammad said did not jive with each other. Oh, my God. Oh, that's the second reference of jive in this book. <laughs> there was no authoritative compilation of the Quran in existence when Muhammad died. It took years after Muhammad's death for his sayings to be gathered together. How unlike the New Testament. That is proof that, that uh, the Koran is wrong. Oh, my God. Despite being claimed to, to be free from all contradictions, there are a number of contradictions in the book. And finally, Matt... There's none in the Bible, though. None. The Koran also directly contradicts the Bible in a number of places. Therefore, false. Oh, then it, false. it has to be wrong. False. Uh, did you read his section about Hinduism? I went through it, yes. His chief complaint about Hinduism is it's so darn complicated. <laughs> <laughs> Hinduism is possibly one of the most complex religious systems ever realized, developed in India over a span of more than a thousand years. He's just, he's just sad that, that uh, it's uh, so complicated. I love it how it says, there's little evidence, scientific or otherwise, to back up the Hindu belief in reincarnation. <laughs> Ah, sigh. Let's move on to Buddhism. Move on to Buddhism. Uh, once again, uh, completely and utterly inept at uh, uh, taking himself outside of his own religion, he says the following, Siddhartha did not claim to have received his spiritual enlightenment from any divinity or any source outside himself. Uh, you know, unlike Jesus. He simply sat down one day and essentially brought his ideas forth out of his own imagination. Uh, further, he did not compile any written records of his teachings. That fucker! How could he not write it down himself? For many years, his followers only transmitted his teachings orally. They were not committed to paper until hundreds of years after Siddhartha's death. So you just take away hundreds and, and replace it with dozens, and uh, you're done. You know, decades. Uh, thus, we have no way of knowing whether what we have today is really Siddhartha's original teachings or not. Oh, my God! <laughs> that they could have been orally transmitted for so many years and not been corrupted to some extent in the process is highly unlikely. They have these monks, Chuck. They stand guard with each other. They make sure no one says a word different each time it's passed on. My head is about to explode, Matt. This might help to explain why Buddhism, since Siddhartha's time, has evolved into many different sects and developed a remarkably expansive system of philosophical thought. How unlike Christianity... Right. There's only one true Christianity, and it's his. Number four is Mormonism. Wait, before you get to that, I just got to point out, because this will come up later, I'm, start, I'm starting to see Kirk getting a kind of ranty a little bit. He yes. starts getting into a, you know, like, you tell, I think he really wanted to be born in the 50s. Or, not born in the 50s, he was born in the 50s. Fuck. <laughs> 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 Live in the 50s. He, he, you know, wanted the, things were better. he wanted the 50s to remain frozen in time forever. Yeah. He mentions it with Hinduism, how it gets, it starts becoming like, it becomes all the rage and popular because and, of all the anti-authority going on with the younger generation. Right. We'll hear more of that later. The hippies. Hippies. Uh, all right. He goes on uh, to Mormonism. When, when he was 18, uh, and by the way, Matt, much like his error in statistics and, and cladism, uh, he makes a mistake on Mormonism that no one even remotely familiar with Mormonism would ever make. This is something that if you've ever read the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, uh, any of the foundational literature of Mormonism, you'd never make this mistake. 
clearly, again, he's, he's working off of secondary sources, and he never checks those secondary sources. All right, uh, here we go. This is on page 116. When he was 18, Smith claimed to have had another vision where an angel named Moroni came to him and told him where a book written on golden plates was hidden that contained an, an account of ancient inhabitants of the American continent and the details of how they were visited by the risen Christ after his resurrection. Smith took these plates home, and, though he had no training whatsoever in ancient languages, supposedly set about translating them into English. They were written in what Smith called Reformed Egyptian. He had these writings published under the title Book of Commandments in 1830. Later, the book underwent many changes and was eventually retitled Doctrine and Covenants, and was accepted by all subsequent Mormons as being a sacred text equal to the Bible. What's the problem? What's the problem? The problem is the Doctrine and Covenants are a set of revelations that were given to Joseph Smith and not the fucking Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is the uh, account of ancient inhabitants of the American continent, and the details of how they were visited by the risen Christ after his resurrection. Not the Doctrine and Covenants. This is the foundational book of Mormonism, and he can't fucking get that right. Oh, I guess I wasn't familiar enough with Mormonism. <laughs> and I you're not right past that. You're not writing a book about Mormonism either, saying why Mormonism is wrong. I can tell you that Every single Mormon from five years old on who reads that sentence in his book will automatically discount everything else in the book. If he has taken that little care on Mormonism, how can you trust him on any other religion or any other claim that he makes? This book is worthless. Are you saying we can't even trust him on the Christianity part? No. My God. We can't trust him in Christianity because his IQ has been demonstrated to be roughly in the teens. Like 12? <laughs> <laughs> Teens, Matt. <laughs> Ten to the fifty. All right, that joke's over. That joke shall no longer be used. Oh, I, you know, Matt. Um, oh God, I can't. I, I'm, I'm done. I'm worn out. I, I've raised the red flag. Kirk has defeated me under an avalanche of dumb. I cannot continue. He goes on to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses. He talks about Christian Science. He has a, a fucking unreal uh, section on secular humanism. Oh, my God. I can't. I can't do it. I surrender. <laughs> surrender. I surrender, Kirk Hastings. I surrender. You don't want to read the parts where he just copies sections of books? For, this is like the worst book report ever made with, like, double space and lots of padding. I, I yield to you. If, if you can carry the torch, please carry the torch. I can't, I can't continue. No. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what. Um, what I'm going to do I, now, I, yeah, I, you know, I've read the rest of the book. I haven't highlighted any of the rest of the book, um, because it was so irrelevant. You know, there's a, part 13 is the scopes monkey trial and inherit the wind. It just fucking massive, uh, massive portion of the book. That's completely irrelevant. Part 14 is the role of propaganda in a modern society. He lists, um, some of the major methods of propaganda, like every fucking one of these, he violates in his own book. Number one, the selective use of evidence. Jesus, age Christ. The selective <laughs> use of evidence, Kirk? Two, begging the question. Oh, no, he doesn't do that in his section about New Testament Christianity. Uh, number three, utilizing straw man arguments. Yeah, right. All of his <laughs> evolutionary stuff, totally not straw man. Uh, four, appealing to particular authorities. Holy, Holy fucking shit. <laughs> How can you put that on there? That's the whole book. Number five, using ad hominem arguments. And number six, shifting definitions. Every fucking one of these are exemplified in his book. And he writes this unironically. Holy shit. And then it's the, finally the last uh, section of the book is conclusion, the ultimate significance of this information. Uh, so he comes with uh, his, his conclusions, which are one, the simple cannot create the complex. Uh, of course, his complex uh, god omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipowerful, omni-everything, just sort of always existed, so no problem. Uh, the impersonal cannot create the personal, but apparently the personal always existed anyway, so that doesn't fucking matter. Uh, the random cannot create the regular. <laughs> right, of course. Snowflakes don't exist, by the way. What does he mean in that section when he says, months are measured by how long it takes the moon to change its shape? <laughs> what? Change its shape? Oh, God, that's a shadow, Kirk. The moon doesn't actually squish into a crescent. He says, and years are calculated based on the amount of time it takes to Earth to orbit the sun. These things all run on a recurrent, habitual, habitual? 
basis, and they are so regular and precise that no man-made clock can perfectly measure those movements. Oh, I call bullshit on that. Bullshit. The atomic clock is much, much more precise than watching the Earth go around the sun. <laughs> he also says that it's because they are exactly regular to a fraction of a nanosecond. Their rate of movement never changes. Correct. That, that's that's Holy why we... Shit. That's why we have leap years every four years, you fucking idiot. <laughs> Jesus. Nothing that man can build has this kind of a precision. Nothing. It's, not not an atomic, atomic clock. clock. Yes. Number four, what we see cannot be fully explained except by that which we cannot see. <laughs> oh, God. What? Inflammable means flammable? <laughs> <laughs> Neither scientists nor anyone else can explain the existence of the myriad amazing functions of the material universe. That's just a big fucking argument ad ignorantum. Uh, so, you know, there we go. Uh, th- there you go. So let, let me read this last part to you. You don't have to be a philosopher or a theologian or a scientist to understand truth. You don't even have to be a college graduate. Hell, you don't even have to have a functioning brain. Right. All you have to do is to be emotionally and intellectually objective. <laughs> and carefully study the available evidence for yourself and see where it takes you. Be careful not to let anyone else dictate truth to you. Because many people have a personal agenda behind their persuasions. What? Uh, unlike Kirk Hastings in this book. Wait a second. Did he just put that sentence in a book called <laughs> What is Truth? <laughs> he said, don't let it dictate truth to you. Especially me. Oh, Sometimes people do discover the truth about something, but then they end up rejecting it because they don't like what they found. Then they try to convince everyone else about the truth of their new lopsided opinion. Lopsided opinion? in order to make themselves feel better about deceiving themselves. But this is self-deception, not truth. It is also the very essence of propaganda, and it leads nowhere. You can't even begin to really understand what reality is until you're willing to accept whatever the evidence shows it to be. If you can do this, then you are well on your way. And in your search, try the Bible. You might be surprised to find out how much sense it really makes. And with that, Kirk Hastings... Closes his magnum opus. What is truth? I, I what I would like to do is create a list of people. I'm going to take this piece of shit and mail it to the first person on that list, and then they can read it, and then they can mail it to the next person on the list. So no one has to spend any money on this shit, but still be uh, absolutely entertained and amazed by the contents within this little yellow book. That's right. Don't forget to go through the glossary. So in the comments to this section. Um, I think there's a previous list in previous comments, so we'll just add on to that. But in the comments of this section uh, uh, on the Irreligiosophy website, give me your email address or uh, just put a, a list of uh, who wants what, and we'll make this great list of, of who, and then we'll get in con- I'll get in contact with the first person on the list, and I'll send it. It'll just pay it forward. The book? Yes. What should I do with this book? Burn it. Burn it. I will not burn a book, not even Kirk's book. At the very least, vomit and or shit upon it. <laughs> I will hide it, though, because I'm kind of embarrassed when I, people see me with it. <laughs> How about you give me and I'll send that second copy to someone else? All right. Unless you want to keep it, Matt. It's full of uh, facts, objective truth, and the opposite of propaganda. <laughs> That's right. Because recommended reading for further study under media bias, the first two recommendations are Ann Coulter. <laughs> Holy fucking shit. Would you like to know more about Christian apologetics? C.S. Lewis, Dinesh D'Souza. How about creation versus evolution? I suggest you read Michael Behe, William Dembski. Absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable. We didn't didn't really talk about all his rantiness, but I guess... Go for it. Go for it. Do you have some specific uh, ranty quotes that you appreciate? Oh, oh, I do. I have... um, most Christians and conservatives are referred to as right-wing, but you never, that's italicized, hear anyone referred to with the term left-wing. Never. I've never heard that before. <laughs> He's complained about that. And then right down to that, he says, like, most conservative organizations are almost always referred to as conservative. Oh, my God. Yet most liberal organizations are never referred to as liberal. Of you course just not. did that. Of course not. Heaven forbid we refer to an organization accurately. <laughs> what, what, what would you like us to say, Kirk? He has a part where he complains about the news reporting. 
It's like they're always like in support of the democratic liberals, support radical Kremlin, pro-abortion. All these news sources, CBS, NBC, ABC, doesn't mention Fox there, though. Um, right. I th- isn't Fox the number one news station, the most popular one? Exactly. Oh, my God. He's not up on multiculturalism. He doesn't like that. He doesn't like diversity. He doesn't like relativism. No, it's... I mean, you got it all in here. You got propaganda in our schools and colleges. You got historical revisionism. Yeah. Honestly, it's essentially a, a quick rewriting of Ann Coulter's Godless. Yeah. He's got a big section on, because, well, he's got the big section on Inherit the Wind, which we don't have to talk about because, you know. Please, dear God, no. <laughs> fuck that shit. But he, but he kind of, you can see, like, his, like, grumpy old man come in when he's, uh, he talks about what happened in the 60s with the, with the movie authority or whatever the hell they were called when they went to this, the PGGR system. Yes. And how that was the downfall of yes. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh uh, yeah. And the, this always gets me when people talk about these, the liberal message that, you know, Hollywood's sending. Hollywood is concerned about pretty much one thing and that's making fucking money. Yeah. If people will go see a movie where you just stab babies for an hour and a half, they would make movies about stabbing babies all the time. Right. Um, you know, if you look in colleges, by the way, too, the humanities and the arts always tend to be more liberal or left-leaning. Uh, it's just the nature of, of uh, the game. The, the conservatives are typically the ones that are all about censoring the arts. <laughs> Get the fuck rid of it. Well, he uh, thinks art is for entertainment. Yes, right. That's what it used to be about. Movies used to be about entertainment. Right. You know, artists, they are our soul. They are our, you know, the conscience of society. No, they're not. They're the um, left-leaning, left-leaning assholes of society. Oh, that's right. They're the cause of okay. all of our problems in society. Oh, jeez. So, is this it? That's it. That's all I got. That's all I'm willing to do. That's all I can do. All I can do. I can, you know, I have met... Uh, Kirk Hastings' patness of stupidity, and I have been defeated by his sumo moves. Oh, Chuck, you have been boxed into an intellectual corner by the intellect of Kirk Hastings. Uh, yes, there is no way around it. I uh, I have been boxed into a... <laughs> what's, a what's the opposite of an intellectual corner? <laughs> I say the wet paper bag of Kirk's perspective. <laughs> This jailed you from... Oh, fuck this guy. They're done. <laughs> oh, God. God almighty. All right, Matt. Um, I'm not sure where to go from here. Um, I'm not going to do any more of these Kirk Hastings podcasts. I think we'll probably take a, a bit of a break, regroup, and uh, relaunch, either as Unapologetics or Irreligiosophy 2.0, the second coming. Uh-huh. We'll see you when we see you. Until then, (laughs) what'd you say? (laughs) I said I might not be here. I don't know if Chuck will have me back. After this, no. It's too many many bad memories. (laughs) I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from the sheer stupidity of Hastingsology.